Chapter Nine of Mary Marie. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lynn Thompson. Mary Marie by Eleanor H. Porter. Chapter Nine. Which is the test? Andersonville. Twelve years later. Twelve years, yes, and I'm twenty-eight years old. Pretty old, the little Mary Marie of the long ago would think. And, well, perhaps today I feel just as old as she would put it. I came up into the attic this morning to pack away some things I shall no longer need, now that I am going to leave Jerry. Jerry is my husband. And in the bottom of my little trunk I found this manuscript. I had forgotten such a thing existed but with its laboriously written pages before me it all came back to me and i began to read here a sentence there a paragraph somewhere else a page then with a little half laugh and a half sob i carried it to an old rocking chair by the cobwebby dormer window and settled myself to read it straight through and i have read it poor little mary marie dear little mary marie to meet you like this to share with you your joys and sorrows hopes and despairs of those years long ago is like sitting hand in hand on a sofa with a childhood's friend each listening to an eager and do you remember falling constantly from delighted lips that cannot seem to talk half fast enough but you have taught me much little mary marie i understand oh i understand so many things so much better now since reading this little story in your round childish hand you see i had almost forgotten that i was a mary and a marie jerry calls me molly and i had wondered what were those contending forces within me i know now it is the mary and the marie trying to settle their old old quarrel it was almost dark when i had finished the manuscript the far corners of the attic were peopled with fantastic shadows and the spiders in the window were swaying lazy and full-stomached in the midst of the day's spoils of gruesome wings and legs i got up slowly stiffly shivering a little i felt suddenly old and worn and ineffably weary it is a long long journey back to our childhood sometimes even though one may only be twenty-eight I looked down at the last page of the manuscript. It was written on the top sheet of a still thick pad of paper, and my fingers fairly tingled suddenly to go on and cover those unused white sheets. Tell what happened next. Tell the rest of the story. Not for the sake of the story, but for my sake. It might help me. It might make things clearer. It might help to justify myself in my own eyes. Not that I have any doubts, of course, about leaving Jerry, I mean, but that when I saw it in black and white I could be even more convinced that I was doing what was best for him and best for me. So I brought the manuscript down to my own room, and this evening I have commenced to write. I can't finish it tonight, of course, but I have tomorrow and still tomorrow. I have so many tomorrows now, and what will they all amount to? And so I'll just keep writing as I have time till I bring it to the end. I'm sorry that it must be so sad and sorry an end, but there's no other way, of course. There can be but one ending, as I can see. I'm sorry. Mother will be sorry, too. She doesn't know yet. I hate to tell her. 
Nobody knows. Not even Jerry himself, yet. They all think I'm just making a visit to Mother. And I am, till I write that letter to Jerry. And then... I believe now that I'll wait till I finish writing this. I'll feel better then. My mind will be clearer. I'll know more what to say. Just the effort of writing it down. Of course, if Jerry and I hadn't... But this is no way to begin. Like the little Mary Marie of long ago, I am in danger of starting my dinner with ice cream instead of soup. And so I must begin where I left off, of course, and that was at the wedding. I remember that wedding as if it were yesterday. I can see now, with Mary Marie's manuscript before me, why it made so great an impression upon me. It was a very quiet wedding, of course, just the members of the family present. But I shall never forget the fine, sweet loveliness of Mother's face, nor the splendid strength and tenderness of Father's, and the way he drew her into his arms and kissed her after it was all over. Well, I remember distinctly that even Aunt Hattie choked up and had to turn her back to wipe her eyes. They went away at once, first to New York for a day or two, then to Andersonville, to prepare for the real wedding trip to the other side of the world. I stayed in Boston, at school. And because nothing of consequence happened all those weeks and months, is the reason, I suspect, why the manuscript got tossed into the bottom of my little trunk and stayed there. In the spring, when father and mother returned, and we all went back to Andersonville, there followed another long period of just happy girlhood, and I suspect I was too satisfied and happy to think of writing. After all, I've noticed it's when we're sad or troubled over something that we have that tingling to cover perfectly good white paper with confessions and stories of my life. As witness right now what I'm doing. And so it's not surprising, perhaps, that Mary Marie's manuscript still lay forgotten in that little old trunk after it was taken up to the attic. Mary Marie was happy. And it was happy, that girlhood of mine, after we came back to Andersonville. I can see now, as I look back at it, that father and mother were doing everything in their power to blot out of my memory those unhappy years of my childhood. For that matter, they were also doing everything in their power to blot out of their own memories those same unhappy years. To me, as I look back at it, it seems that they must have succeeded wonderfully, they were very happy, I believe, father and mother. Oh, it was not always easy, even I could see that. It took a lot of adjusting, a lot of rubbing off of square corners to keep the daily life running smoothly. But when two persons are determined that it shall run smoothly, when each is steadfastly looking to the other's happiness, not at his own, why things just can't help smoothing out then. But it takes them both. One can't do it alone. Now, if Jerry would only... But it isn't time to speak of Jerry yet. I'll go back to my girlhood. It was a trying period, it must have been, for father and mother, in spite of their great love for me and their efforts to create for me a happiness that would erase the past from my mind. I realise it now, for, after all, I was just a girl, a young girl like other girls, high-strung, nervous, thoughtless, full of my whims and fancies, and in addition, with enough of my mother and enough of my father within me to make me veritably a cross-current and a contradiction, as I had said that I was in the opening sentence of my childish autobiography. I had just passed my sixteenth birthday when we all came back to live in Andersonville. For the first few months I suspect that just the glory and the wonder and joy of living in the old home with father and mother happy together was enough to fill all my thoughts. 
then as school began in the fall i came down to normal living again and became a girl just a growing girl in her teens how patient mother was and father too i can see now how gently and tactfully they helped me over the stones and stumbling blocks that strew the pathway of every sixteen-year-old girl who thinks because she has turned down her dresses and turned up her hair that she is grown up and can do and think and talk as she pleases i will remember how hurt and grieved and superior i was at mother's insistence upon more frequent rubbers and warm coats and fewer ice-cream sodas and chocolate bonbons why surely i was old enough now to take care of myself wasn't i ever to be allowed to have my own opinions and exercise my own judgment it seemed not thus spoke superior sixteen as for clothes i remember distinctly the dreary november rainstorm of the morning i reproachfully accused mother of wanting to make me back into a stupid little mary just because she so uncompromisingly disapproved of the beaded chain and bangles and jewelled combs and spangled party dresses that every girl in school was wearing why the idea did she want me to dress like a little frump of a country girl it seems she did poor mother dear mother i wonder how she kept her patience at all but she kept it i remember that distinctly too it was that winter that i went through the morbid period like our childhood's measles and whooping cough it seems to come to most of us us women children i wonder why certainly it came to me true to type i cried by the hour over fancied slights from my schoolmates and brooded days at a time because father or mother didn't understand i questioned everything in the earth beneath and the heavens above and in my dark despair over an averted glance from my most intimate friend i meditated on whether life was or was not worth the living with a preponderance towards the latter being plunged into a state of settled gloom i then became acutely anxious as to my soul's salvation and feverishly pursued every ism and ology that caught my roving eye's attention until in one short month i had become in despairing rotation an incipient agnostic atheist pantheist and monist meanwhile i read ibsen and wisely discussed the new school of domestic relationships mother dear mother looked on aghast she feared i think for my life certainly for my sanity and morals it was father this time who came to the rescue he pooh-poohed mother's fears said it was indigestion that ailed me and that i was growing too fast or perhaps i didn't get enough sleep or needed maybe a good tonic he took me out of school and made it a point to accompany me on long walks he talked with me not to me about the birds and the trees and the sunsets and then about the deeper things of life until before i realized it i was sane and sensible once more serene and happy in the simple faith of my childhood with all the isms and ologies a mere bad dream in the dim past i was seventeen if i remember rightly when i became worried not over my heavenly estate now but my earthly one i must have a career of course no namby-pamby everyday living of dishes and dusting and meals and babies for me it was all very well of course for some people such things had to be but for me i could write of course but i was not sure but that i preferred the stage at the same time there was within me a deep stirring as of a call to go out and enlighten the world 
especially that portion of it in darkest Africa or deadliest India. I would be a missionary. Before I was eighteen, however, I had abandoned all this. Father put his foot down hard on the missionary project, and Mother put hers down on the stage idea. I didn't mind so much, though, as I remember, for on further study and consideration, I found that flowers and applause were not all of an actor's life, and that Africa and India were not entirely desirable as a place of residence for a young woman alone. Besides, I had decided by then that I could enlighten the world just as effectually and much more comfortably by writing stories at home and getting them printed. So I wrote stories, but I did not get any of them printed, in spite of my earnest efforts. In time, therefore, that idea also was abandoned, and with it, regretfully, the idea of enlightening the world at all. Besides, I had just then, again if I remember rightly, fallen in love. Not that it was the first time. Oh, no, not at eighteen, when at thirteen I had begun confidently and happily to look for it. What a sentimental little piece I was. How can they have been so patient with me? Father, mother, everybody. I think the first real attack, the first that I consciously called love myself, was the winter after we had all come back to Andersonville to live. I was sixteen and in the high school. It was Paul Mayhew, yes, the same Paul Mayhew, that had defied his mother and sister and walked home with me one night and invited me to go for an automobile ride, only to be sent away sharply about his business by my stern, inexorable Aunt Jane. Paul was in the senior class now, and the handsomest, most admired boy in school. He didn't care for girls, that is, he said he didn't. He bore himself with a supreme indifference that was maddening, and that took, apparently, no notice of the fact that every girl in school was a willing slave to the mere nodding of his head or the beckoning of his hand. This was the condition of things when I entered school that fall, and perhaps for a week after. Then one day, very suddenly and without apparent reason, he awoke to the fact of my existence. Candy, flowers, books, some of these he brought to me every morning. All during the school day, he was my devoted gallant, dancing attendance every possible minute outside of session hours, and walking home with me in the afternoon, proudly carrying my books. Did I say home with me? That is not strictly true. He always stopped just one block short of home, one block short of my gate. He evidently had not forgotten Aunt Jane, and did not intend to take any foolish risks, so he said good-bye to me always at a safe distance. That this savoured of deception, or was in any way objectionable, did not seem to have occurred to me. Even if it had, I doubt very much if my course would have been altered, for I was bewitched and fascinated and thrilled with the excitement of it all. I was sixteen, remember, and this wonderful Adonis and woman-hater had chosen me, me, and left all the other girls desolate and sighing, looking after us with longing eyes. Of course I was thrilled. This went on for perhaps a week. Then he asked me to attend a school sleigh ride and supper with him. I was wild with delight. At the same time, I was wild with apprehension. I awoke suddenly to the fact of the existence of father and mother, and that their permission must be gained. And I had my doubts, I had very grave doubts. Yet it seemed to me at that moment that I just had to go on that sleigh ride, that it was the only thing in the whole wide world worth while. I can remember now, as if it were yesterday, 
the way I debated in my mind as to whether I should ask father, mother, or both together, that if I should let it be seen how greatly I desired to go, and how much it meant to me, or if I should just mention it as in passing, and take their permission practically for granted. I chose the latter course, and I took a time when they were both together. At the breakfast table I mentioned casually that the school was to have a sleigh ride and supper the next Friday afternoon and evening, and that Paul Mayhew had asked me to go with him. I said I hoped it would be a pleasant night, but that I should wear my sweater under my coat, anyway, and I'd wear my leggings too if they thought it necessary. Sweater and leggings, two of mother's hobbies. Artful child. But if I thought that a sweater and pair of leggings would muffle their ears as to what had gone before, I soon found my mistake. A sleigh ride, supper, and not come home until evening, cried mother. And with whom did you say? Paul Mayhew, I answered. I still tried to speak casually. At the same time, I tried to indicate by voice and manner something of the great honour that had been bestowed upon their daughter. Father was impressed plainly impressed but not at all in the way i had hoped he would be he gave me a swift sharp glance then looked straight at mother huh paul mayhew yes i know him he said grimly and i'm dreading the time when he comes into college next year you mean mother hesitated and stopped i mean i don't like the company he keeps already nodded father then you don't think that mary marie mother hesitated again and glanced at me certainly not said father decidedly i knew then of course that he meant i couldn't go on the sleigh ride even though he hadn't said the words right out i forgot all about being casual and indifferent and matter of course then i thought only of showing them how absolutely necessary it was for them to let me go on that sleigh ride unless they wanted my life forever more hopelessly blighted i explained carefully how he was the handsomest most popular boy in school and how all the girls were just crazy to be asked to go anywhere with him and i argued that if father had seen him with boys he did not like then that was all the more reason why nice girls like me when he asked them should go with him so as to keep him away from the bad boys and i told them that this was the first and last and only sleigh ride of the school year and i said i'd be heartbroken just heartbroken if they did not let me go and i reminded them again that he was the very handsomest most popular boy in school and that there wasn't a girl i knew who wouldn't be crazy to be in my shoes then i stopped all out of breath and i can imagine just how pleading and palpitating i looked i thought father was going to refuse right away but i saw the glance that mother threw him the glance that said let me attend to this dear i'd seen that glance before several times and i knew just what it meant so i wasn't surprised to see father shrug his shoulders and turn away as mother said to me very well dear i'll think it over and let you know tonight but i was surprised that night to have mother say i could go for i'd about given up hope after all the talk at the breakfast table and she said something else that surprised me too she said she'd like to know paul mayhew herself and that she always wanted to know the friends of her little girl and she told me to ask him to call the next evening and play checkers or chess with me happy i could scarcely contain myself for joy and when the next evening came bringing paul a mother all prettily dressed as if he were really truly company came into the room and talked so beautifully to him i was even more entranced to be sure it did bother me a little that paul laughed so much and so loudly and that he couldn't seem to find anything to talk about only himself and what he was doing and what he was going to do 
Some way he had never seemed like that at school, and I was afraid Mother wouldn't like that. All the evening I was watching and listening with her eyes and her ears, everything he did, everything he said. I so wanted Mother to like him. I so wanted Mother to see how really fine and splendid and noble he was. But that evening, why couldn't he stop talking about the prizes he'd won and the big racing car he'd just ordered for next summer? There was nothing fine and splendid and noble about that. And were his fingernails always so dirty? Why, Mother would think... Mother did not stay in the room all the time, but she was in more or less often to watch the game, and at half-past nine she brought in some little cakes and lemonade as a surprise. I thought it was lovely, but I could have shaken Paul when he pretended to be afraid of it and asked Mother if there was a stick in it. The idea! Mother! A stick! I just knew Mother wouldn't like that. But if she didn't, she never showed a thing in her face. She just smiled and said no, there wasn't any stick in it, and passed the cakes. When he had gone, I remember I didn't like to meet Mother's eyes, and I didn't ask her how she liked Paul Mayhew. I kept right on talking fast about something else. Some way, I didn't want Mother to talk then, for fear of what she would say. And Mother didn't say anything about Paul Mayhew, then. But only a few days later, she told me to invite him again to the house, this time to a chafing-dish supper, and to ask Carrie Haywood and Fred Small, too. We had a beautiful time, only again Paul Mayhew didn't show off at all in the way I wanted him to, though he most emphatically showed off in his way. It seemed to me that he bragged even more about himself and his belongings than he had before, and I didn't like at all the way he ate his food. Why, Father didn't eat like that, with such a noisy mouth and such a rattling of the silverware. And so it went. Wise mother that she was. Far from prohibiting me to have anything to do with Paul Mayhew, she let me see all I wanted to of him, particularly in my own home. She let me go out with him, properly chaperoned, and she never, by word or manner, hinted that she didn't admire his conceit and braggadocio. And it all came out exactly as I suspect she had planned from the beginning. When Paul Mayhew asked to be my escort to the class reception in June, I declined with thanks, and immediately afterwards told Fred Small I would go with him. But even when I told Mother nonchalantly and with carefully averted eyes that I was going to the reception with Fred Small, even then her pleasant, Well, that's good, conveyed only cheery mother interest. Nor did a hasty glance into her face discover so much as a lifted eyebrow to hint, I thought you'd come to your senses some time. Wise little mother that she was. In the days and weeks that followed, though nothing was said, I detected a subtle change in certain matters, however, and as I look back at it now, I am sure I can trace its origin to my affair with Paul Mayhew. Evidently, Mother had no intention of running the risk of any more block-away courtships. Also, evidently, she intended to know who my friends were. At all events, the old Anderson mansion soon became the rendezvous of all the boys and girls of my acquaintance, and such good times as we had, with mother always one of us, and ever proposing something new and interesting. And because boys, not a boy, but boys, were as free to come to the house as were girls, they seemed to me as commonplace and matter-of-course and free from sentimental interest as were the girls. Again, wise little mother. But of course even this did not prevent my falling in love with someone older than myself, someone quite outside of my own circle of intimates. Almost every girl in her teens at some time falls violently in love with some remote being almost old enough to be her father, 
a being whom she endows with all the graces and perfections of her dream adonis for after all it isn't that she is in love with him this man of flesh and blood before her it is that she is in love with love a very different matter my special attack of this kind came to me when i was barely eighteen the spring i was being graduated from the andersonville high school and the visible embodiment of my adoration was the headmaster mr harold hartshorn a handsome clean-shaven well set-up man of i should judge thirty-five years of age rather grave a little stern and very dignified but how i adored him how i hung upon his every word his every glance how i manoeuvred to win from him a few minutes conversation on a latin verb or a french translation how i thrilled if he bestowed upon me one of his infrequent smiles how i grieved over his stern aloofness by the end of the month i have evolved this his stern aloofness meant he had been disappointed in love his melancholy was loneliness his heart was breaking how i longed to help to heal to cure how i thrilled at the thought of the love and companionship i could give him somewhere in a rose-embowered cottage far from the madding crowd he boarded at the andersonville hotel alone now what nobler career could i have than the blotting out of his stricken heart the memory of that faithless woman who had so wounded him and blighted his youth what indeed if only he could see it as i saw it if only by some sign or token he could know of the warm love that was his but for the asking could he not see that no longer need he pine alone and unappreciated in the andersonville hotel why in just a few weeks i was to be through school and then on the night before commencement mr harold hartshorn ascended our front steps rang the bell and called for my father i knew because i was upstairs in my room over the front door and i saw him come up the walk and heard him ask for father oh joy oh happy day he knew he had seen it as i saw it he had come to gain father's permission that he might be a duly accredited suitor for my hand during the next ecstatic ten minutes with my hand pressed against my wildly beating heart i planned my wedding dress selected with care and discrimination my trousseau furnished the rose-embowered cottage far from the madding crowd and wondered why father did not send for me then the slam of the screen door downstairs sent me to the window a sickening terror within me was he going without seeing me his future bride impossible father and mr harold hartshorn stood on the front steps below talking in another minute mr harold hartshorn had walked away and father had turned back onto the piazza as soon as i could control my shaking knees i went downstairs father was in his favorite rocking chair i advanced slowly i did not sit down was that mr hartshorn i asked trying to keep the shake out of my voice yes mr hartshorn i repeated stupidly yes he came to see me about the downer place nodded father he wants to rent it for next year to rent it the downer place the downer place was no rose-embowered cottage far from the madding crowd why it was big and brick and right next to the hotel i didn't want to live there yes for his wife and family he's going to bring them back with him next year explained father his wife and family i can imagine how i gasped out those four words yes he has five children i believe and but i have fled to my room after all my recovery was rapid i was in love with love you see not with mr harold hartshorn 
Besides, the next year I went to college, and it was while I was at college that I met Jerry. Jerry was the brother of my college friend, Helen Weston. Helen's elder sister was a senior in that same college and was graduated at the close of my freshman year. The father, mother, and brother came on to the graduation, and that is where I met Jerry. If it might be called meeting him. He lifted his hat, bowed, said a polite nothing with his lips and an indifferent, oh, some friends of Helen's, with his eyes, and turned to a radiant blonde senior at my side. And that was all for him, but for me. All that day I watched him whenever opportunity offered, and I suspect that I took care that opportunity offered frequently. I was fascinated. I had never seen anyone like him before. Tall, handsome, brilliant, at perfect ease, he plainly dominated every group of which he was a part. Toward him every face was turned, yet he never seemed to know it. Whatever his faults, Jerry is not conceited. I will give him credit for that. To me, he did not speak again that day. I'm not sure that he even looked at me. If he did, there must still have been in his eyes only the, oh, some friend of Helen's, that I had seen at the morning introduction. I did not meet Jerry Weston again for nearly a year, but that did not mean that I did not hear of him. I wonder if Helen ever noticed how often I used to get her to talk of her home and family life, and how interested I was in her gallery of portraits on the mantel. There were two fine ones of her brother there. Helen was very fond of her brother. I soon found out that she loved to talk about him, if she had a good listener. Needless to say, she had a very good one in me. Jerry was an artist, it seemed. He was twenty-eight years old, and already he had won no small distinction. Prizes, medals, honourable mention, and a special course abroad, all these Helen told me about. She told me, too, about the wonderful success he had just had with a portrait of a certain New York society woman. She said that it was just going to make Jerry, that he could have anything he wanted now, anything. Then she told me how popular he always was with everybody. Helen was not only very fond of her brother, but very proud of him. That was plain to see. In her opinion, evidently, there was none to be compared with him. And apparently, in my own mind, I agreed with her. There was none to be compared with him. At all events, all the other boys that used to call and bring me candy and send me flowers at about this time suffered woefully in comparison with him. I remember that. So tame they were, so crude and young and unpolished. I saw Jerry myself during the Easter vacation of my second year in college. Helen invited me to go home with her, and Mother wrote that I might go. Helen had been home with me for the Christmas vacation, and Mother and Father liked her very much. There was no hesitation, therefore, in their consent that I should visit Helen at Easter time, so I went. Helen lived in New York. Their home was a Fifth Avenue mansion, with nine servants, four automobiles, and two chauffeurs. Naturally, such a scale of living was entirely new to me, and correspondingly fascinating. From the elaborately uniformed footman that opened the door for me, to the awesome French maid who did my hair, I adored them all, and moved as in a dream of enchantment. Then came Jerry, home for a weekend's trip, and I forgot everything else. I knew from the minute his eyes looked into mine that whatever I had been before, I was certainly no mere, oh, some friend of Helen's. I was, so his eyes said, a deucedly pretty girl, and one well worth cultivating. Whereupon he began at once to do the cultivating. And just here, perversely enough, 
I grew indifferent. Or was it only feigned? Not consciously, but unconsciously. Whatever it was, it did not endure long. Nothing could have endured under the circumstances. Nothing ever endures with Jerry on the other side. In less than thirty-six hours I was caught up in the whirlwind of his wooing, and would not have escaped if I could. When I went back to college, he held my promise that if he could gain the consent of father and mother, he might put the engagement ring on my finger. Back at college, alone in my own room, I drew a long breath and began to think. It was the first chance I had had, for even Helen now had become Jerry, by reflection. The more I thought, the more frightened, dismayed, and despairing I became. In the clear light of calm, sane reasoning, it was all so absurd, so impossible. What could I have been thinking of? Of Jerry, of course. With hot cheeks I answered my own question, and even the thought of him then cast a spell of his presence about me, and again I was back in the whirl of dining and dancing and motoring, with his dear face at my side. Of Jerry, yes, of Jerry I was thinking, but I must forget Jerry. I pictured Jerry in Andersonville, in my own home. I tried to picture him talking to father, to mother. Absurd! What had Jerry to do with the learned treatise on stars, or with the humdrum everyday life of a stupid small town? For that matter, what had father and mother to do with dancing and motoring and painting society queen's portraits? Nothing. Plainly, even if Jerry, for the sake of the daughter, liked father and mother, father and mother certainly would not like Jerry. That was certain. Of course, I cried myself to sleep that night. That was to be expected. Jerry was the world and the world was lost. There was nothing left except, perhaps, a few remnants and pieces scarcely worth counting, excepting, of course, father and mother. But one could not always have one's father and mother. There would come a time when... Jerry's letter came the next day, by special delivery. He had gone straight home from the station and begun to write to me. How like Jerry that was, particularly the special delivery stamp. The most of his letter, aside from the usual lover's rhapsodies, had to do with plans for the summer, what we would do together at the western summer cottage in Newport. He said he should run up to Andersonville early, very early, just as soon as I was back from college, in fact, so that he might meet father and mother and put that ring on my finger. And while I read the letter, I just knew he would do it. Why, I could even see the sparkle of the ring on my finger. But in five minutes after the letter was folded and put away, I knew, with equal certitude, that he wouldn't. It was like that all spring term, while under the spell of the letters as I read them, I saw myself the adored wife of Jerry Weston, and happy ever after. All the rest of the time, I knew myself to be plain Mary Marie Anderson, forever lonely and desolate. I had been at home exactly eight hours when a telegram from Jerry asked permission to come at once. As gently as I could, I broke the news to father and mother. He was Helen's brother. They must have heard me mention him. I knew him well, very well indeed. In fact, the purpose of this visit was to ask them for the hand of their daughter. Father frowned and scolded and said, Tut, tut, and that I was nothing but a child. But Mother smiled and shook her head, even while she sighed, and reminded him that I was twenty, two whole years older than she was when she married him, though in the same breath she admitted that I was young, and she certainly hoped I'd be willing to wait before I married, even if the young man was all that they could ask him to be. Father was still a little rebellious, I think, but Mother, bless her dear, sympathetic heart, 
soon convinced him that they must at least consent to see this gerald weston so i sent the wire inviting him to come more fearfully than ever then i awaited the meeting of my lover and my father and mother with the weston's mansion and manner of living in the glorified past and the anderson homestead and its manner of living very much in the plain unvarnished present i trembled more than ever for the results of that meeting not that i believed jerry would be snobbish enough to scorn our simplicity but that there would be no common meeting-ground of congeniality i need not have worried but i did not know jerry then so well as i do now jerry came and he had not been five minutes in the house before it might easily have seemed that he had always been there he did know about stars at least he talked with father about them and so as to hold father's interest too and he knew a lot about innumerable things in which mother was interested he stayed four days and in all the while he was there i never so much as thought of ceremonious dress and dinners the liveried butlers and footmen nor did it once occur to me that our simple kitchen nora and old john's son at the wheel of our one motor-car were not beautifully and entirely adequate so unassumingly and so perfectly did jerry unmistakably fit in there are no other words that so exactly express what i mean and in the end even his charm and his triumph were so unobtrusively complete that i never thought of being surprised at the prompt capitulation of both father and mother jerry had brought the ring jerry always brings his rings and he never fails to put them on and he went back to new york with mother's promise that i should visit them in july at their cottage in newport they seemed like a dream those four days after he had gone and i should have been tempted to doubt the whole thing had there not been a sparkle of the ring on my finger and the frequent reference to jerry on the lips of both father and mother they loved jerry both of them father said he was a fine manly young fellow and mother said he was a dear boy a very dear boy neither of them spoke much of his painting jerry himself had scarcely mentioned it to them as i remembered after he had gone i went to newport in july the cottage as i suspected was twice as large and twice as pretentious as the new york residence and it sported twice the number of servants once again i was caught in a world of dinners and dances and motoring with the addition of tennis and bathing and always at my side was jerry seemingly living only upon my lightest whim and fancy he wished to paint my portrait but there was no time especially as my visit in accordance with mother's inexorable decision was of only one week's duration but what a wonderful week it was i seemed to be under a kind of spell it was as if i were in a new world a world such as no one had ever been in before oh i knew of course that others had loved but not as we loved i was sure that no one had ever loved as we loved and it was so much more wonderful than anything i had ever dreamed of this love of ours yet all my life since my early teens i had been thinking and planning and waiting for it love and now it had come the real thing the others all the others had been shams and make-believes and counterfeits to think that i had ever thought those silly little episodes with poor mayhew and freddie small and mr harold hartshorn were love absurd but now and so i walked and moved and breathed in this spell that had been cast upon me and thought little fool that i was that never had there been before nor could there be again a love quite so wonderful as ours at newport jerry decided that he wanted to be married right away 
He didn't want to wait two more endless years until I was graduated. The idea of wasting all that valuable time when we might be together. And when there was really no reason for it either, no reason at all. I smiled to myself, even as I thrilled at his sweet insistence. I was pretty sure I knew two reasons, two very good reasons, why I could not marry before graduation. One reason was father. The other reason was mother. I hinted as much. Oh, is that all? He laughed and kissed me. I'll run down and see them about it, he said jauntily. I smiled again. I had no more idea that anything he could say would... But I didn't know Jerry then. I had not been home from Newport a week when Jerry kept his promise and ran down, and he had not been there two days before father and mother admitted that, perhaps, after all, it would not be so bad an idea if I shouldn't graduate but should be married instead. And so I was married. Didn't I tell you that Jerry always brought his rings and put them on? And again I say, and so we were married. But what did we know of each other, the real other? True, we had danced together, been swimming together, dined together, played tennis together. But what did we really know of each other's whims and prejudices, opinions and personal habits and tastes? I knew to a word what Jerry would say about a sunset, and he knew, I fancy, what I would say about a dreamy waltz song. But we didn't either of us know what the other would say to a dinnerless home with a cook gone. We were leaving a good deal to be learned later on, but we didn't think of that. Love that is to last must be built upon the realization that troubles and trials and sorrows are sure to come, and that they must be borne together, if one back is not to break under the load. We were entering into a contract, not for a week, but presumably for a lifetime, and a good deal may come to one in a lifetime, not all of it pleasant. We had been brought up in two distinctly different social environments, but we didn't stop to think of that. We liked the same sunsets, and the same make of car, and the same kind of ice cream, and we looked into each other's eyes and thought we knew the other, whereas we were really only seeing the mirrored reflection of ourselves. And so we were married. It was everything that was blissful and delightful, of course, at first. We were still eating the ice cream and admiring the sunsets. I had forgotten that there were things other than sunsets and ice cream, I suspect. I was not twenty-one, remember, and my feet fairly ached to dance. The whole world was a show. Music, lights, laughter, how I loved them all. Marie, of course. Well, yes, I suspect Marie was in the ascendancy about that time, but I never thought of it that way. Then came the baby, Eunice, my little girl, and with one touch of her tiny clinging fingers the whole world of sham the lights and music and glare and glitter just faded all away into nothingness where it belonged as if anything counted with her on the other side of the scales i found out then oh i found out lots of things you see it wasn't that way at all with jerry the lights and music and the glitter and the sham didn't fade away a mite to him when eunice came in fact sometimes it seemed to me they just grew stronger if anything he didn't like it because I couldn't go with him any more, to dances and things, I mean. He said the nurse could take care of Eunice, as if I'd leave my baby with any nurse that ever lived for any old dance. The idea. But Jerry went. At first he stayed with me, but the baby cried, and Jerry didn't like that. It made him irritable and nervous until I was glad to have him go. Who wouldn't be with his eternal repetition of, Molly, can't you stop that baby's crying? 
as if that wasn't exactly what I was trying to do, as hard as ever I could. But Jerry didn't see it that way. Jerry never did appreciate what a wonderful, glorious thing just being a father is. I think it was about at this time that Jerry took up his painting again. I guess I have forgotten to mention that all through the first two years of our marriage, before the baby came, he just tended to me. He never painted a single picture. But after Eunice came... But, after all, what is the use of going over these last miserable years like this? Eunice is five now. Her father is the most popular portrait painter in the country. I am almost tempted to say that he is the most popular man as well. All the old charm and magnetism are there. Sometimes I watch him, for of course I do go out with him once in a while. And always I think of that first day I saw him at college. Brilliant, polished, witty. He still dominates every group of which he is a member. Men and women alike bow to his charm. I'm glad it's not only the women. Jerry isn't a bit of a flirt. I will say that much for him. At any rate, if he does flirt, he flirts just as desperately with old Judge Randlett as he does with the newest and prettiest debutante. With serene impartiality he bestows upon each the same glances, the same wit, the same adorable charm. Praise, attention, applause, music, laughter, lights, they are the breath of life to him. Without them he would, but there, he never is without them, so I don't know what he would be. After all, I suspect that it's just that Jerry still loves the ice cream and the sunsets, but I don't. That's all. To me there's something more to life than that, something higher, deeper, more worthwhile. We haven't a taste in common, a thought in unison, an aspiration in harmony. I suspect, in fact I know, that I get on his nerves just as raspingly as he does on mine. For that reason, I'm sure he'll be glad when he gets my letter. But some way, I dread to tell Mother. Well, it's finished. I've been about four days bringing this autobiography of Mary Marie's to an end. I've enjoyed doing it in a way, though I'll have to admit I can't see it's made things any clearer. But then, it was clear before. There isn't any other way. I've got to write that letter. As I said before, I regret that it must be so sorry an ending. I suppose tomorrow I'll have to tell Mother. I want to tell her, of course, before I write the letter to Jerry. It'll grieve Mother, I know it will, and I'm sorry. Poor Mother. She's already had so much unhappiness in her life, but she's happy now. She and Father are wonderful together. Wonderful. Father is still president of the college. He got out a wonderful book on the eclipses of the moon two years ago, and he's publishing another one about the eclipses of the sun this year. Mother's correcting proof for him. Bless her heart, she loves it. She told me so. Well, I shall have to tell her tomorrow, of course. Tomorrow, which has become today. I wonder if Mother knew what I had come into her little sitting-room this morning to say. It seems as if she must have known. And yet I had wondered how I was going to begin, but before I knew it, I was right in the middle of it, the subject, I mean. That's why I thought perhaps that Mother, but I'm getting as bad as little Mary Marie in the long ago, I'll try now to tell what did happen. I was wetting my lips and swallowing, and wondering how I was going to begin to tell her that I was planning not to go back to Jerry, when all of a sudden I found myself saying something about little Eunice. And then Mother said, Yes, my dear, and that's what comforts me most of anything, because you are so devoted to Eunice. You see, I have feared sometimes, for you and Jerry, that you might separate, but I know, on account of Eunice, that you never will. 
but mother that's the very reason i mean it would be the reason i stammered then i stopped my tongue just wouldn't move my throat and lips were so dry to think that mother suspected knew already about jerry and me and yet to say that on account of eunice i would not do it why it was for eunice largely that i was going to do it to let that child grow up thinking that dancing and motoring was all of life and but mother was speaking again eunice yes you mean that you would never make her go through what you went through when you were her age why mother i i and then i stopped again and i was so angry and indignant with myself because i had to stop when there were so many many things that i wanted to say if only my dry lips would articulate the words mother drew in her breath with a little catch she had grown rather white i wonder if you remember if you ever think of your childhood she said why yes of of course sometimes it was my turn to stammer i was thinking of that diary that i had just read and added to mother drew in her breath again this time with a catch that was almost a sob and then she began to talk at first haltingly with half-finished sentences then hurriedly with a rush of words that seemed not able to utter themselves fast enough to keep up with the thoughts behind them she told of her youth and marriage and of my coming she told of her life with father and of the mistakes she made she told much of course that was in mary marie's diary but she told too oh so much more until like a panorama the whole thing lay before me then she spoke of me and of my childhood and her voice began to quiver she told of the mary and the marie and of the dual nature within me as if i didn't know about that but she told me much that i did not know and she made things much clearer to me until i saw you can see things so much more clearly when you stand off at a distance like this you know than you can when you are close to them she broke down and cried when she spoke of the divorce and of the influence it had upon me and of the false idea of marriage it gave me she said it was the worst kind of thing for me the sort of life i had to live she said i grew pert and precocious and worldly wise and full of servants talks and ideas she even spoke of that night at the little cafe table when i gloried in the sparkle and spangles and told her that now we were seeing life real life and of how shocked she was and how she saw then what this thing was doing to me but it was too late she told more much more about the later years and the reconciliation then some way she brought things around to jerry and me her face flushed up then and she didn't meet my eyes she looked down at her sewing she was very busy turning a hem just so she said there had been a time once when she had worried a little about jerry and me for fear we would separate she said that she believed that for her that would have been the very blackest moment of her life for it would be her fault all her fault i tried to break in here and say no no that it wasn't her fault but she shook her head and wouldn't listen and she lifted her hand and i had to keep still and let her go on talking she was looking straight into my eyes then and there was such a deep deep hurt in them that i just had to listen she said again that it would be her fault that if i had done that she would have known that it was all because of the example she herself had set me of childish wilfulness and selfish seeking of personal happiness at the expense of everything and everybody else and she said that that would have been the last straw to break her heart but she declared that she was sure now that she need not worry such a thing would never be i guess i gasped a little at this 
anyhow i know i tried to break in and tell her that we were going to separate and that was exactly what i had come into the room in the first place to say but again she kept right on talking and i was silenced before i had even begun she said how she knew it could never be on account of eunice that i would never subject my little girl to the sort of wretchedly divided life that i had had to live when i was a child as she spoke i was suddenly back in the cobwebby attic with little mary marie's diary and i thought what if it were eunice writing that she said i was the most devoted mother she had never known that i was too devoted she feared sometimes for i made eunice all my world to the exclusion of jerry and everything and everybody else but that she was sure because i was so devoted and loved eunice so dearly that i would never deprive her of a father's love and care i shivered a little and looked quickly into mother's face but she was not looking at me i was thinking of how jerry had kissed and kissed eunice a month ago when we came away as if he just couldn't let her go jerry is fond of eunice now that she's old enough to know something and eunice adores her father i knew that part was going to be hard and now to have mother put it like that i began to talk then of jerry i just felt that i'd got to say something that mother must listen that she didn't understand i told her how jerry loved lights and music and dancing and crowds bowing down and worshipping him all the time and she said yes she remembered that he'd been that way when i married him she spoke so sort of queenly that again i glanced at her but she was still looking down at the hem she was turning i went on then to explain that i didn't like such things that i believed there were deeper and higher things and things more worth while and she said yes she was glad and that that was going to be my saving grace for of course i realized that there couldn't be anything deeper or higher or more worth while than keeping the home together and putting up with annoyances for the ultimate good of all especially of eunice she went right on then quickly before i could say anything and said that of course i understood that i was still mary and marie even if jerry did call me molly and that if marie had married a man that wasn't always congenial with mary she was very sure mary had enough stamina and good sense to make the best of it and she was very sure also that if mary would only make a little effort to be once in a while the marie he had married things might be a lot easier for mary of course i laughed at that i had to and mother laughed too but we understood we both understood i had never thought of it before but i had been marie when i married jerry i loved lights and music and dancing and gay crowds just exactly as well as he did and it wasn't his fault that i suddenly turned into mary when the baby came and wanted him to stay at home before the fire every evening with his dressing gown and slippers no wonder he was surprised he hadn't married mary he never knew mary at all but do you know i never thought of that before until mother said what she did why probably jerry was just as much disappointed to find his marie turned into a mary as i but mother was talking again she said she thought jerry was a wonderful man in some ways that she never saw a man with such charm and magnetism or one who could so readily adapt himself to different persons and circumstances and she said she was sure if mary could only show a bit more interest in his pictures especially portraits and learn to discuss lights and shadows and perspectives that nothing would be lost and that something might be gained that there was nothing anyway like a community of interests or of hobbies to bring two people together and that it was safer to say the least when it was the wife that shared the community of interests than when it was some other woman 
though of course she knew as well as I knew that Jerry never would. She didn't finish her sentence, and because she didn't finish it, it made me think all the more. And I wondered if she left it unfinished on purpose. Then in a minute she was talking again. She was speaking of Eunice. She said once more that because of her she knew that she need never fear any serious trouble between Jerry and me, for, after all, it's the child that always pays for the mother's mistakes and short-sightedness, just as it is the soldier that pays for his commanding officer's blunders. That's why she felt that I had to pay for her mistakes, and why she knew that I'd never compel my little girl to pay for mine. She said that the mother lives in the heart of the child long after the mother is gone, and that was why the mother always had to be so careful. Then before I knew it, she was talking briskly and brightly about something entirely different, and two minutes later I found myself alone outside of her room, and I hadn't told her. But I wasn't even thinking of that. I was thinking of Eunice, and of that round, childish scrawl of a diary upstairs in the attic trunk. And I was picturing Eunice, in the years to come, writing her diary, and I thought, what if she should have to... I went upstairs then and read that diary again, and all the while I was reading, I thought of Eunice. And when it was finished, I knew that I'd never tell Mother, that I'd never write to Jerry, not the letter that I was going to write. I knew that. They brought Jerry's letter to me at just that point. What a wonderful letter that man can write when he wants to. He says he's lonesome and homesick, and that the house is like a tomb without Eunice and me. And when am I coming home? I wrote him tonight that I was going. Tomorrow. End of chapter 9 End of Mary Marie by Eleanor H. Porter